Hello and welcome to this week's TES uh, podcast. I'm Martin George. I'm joined by Len Mulholland. Hi, Len. Hello. Helen Ward. Hi, Helen. Hi. And Will Stewart. Hi, Will. Hi. Um, so, guys, we had an exciting night last Friday. The TES School Awards. Are we all recovered now? Mm-hmm. Long night for some of us. Just maybe. about. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I've say it was a pretty moving occasion, wasn't it? I mean, I know we could be cynical journalists sometimes, but seeing how much it meant to schools and teachers to see themselves celebrated, I think was was quite special. Yeah, it's, th- it's one of those things, isn't it? It's like when, when you actually go out and see schools, um, when when the kind of what you write about hits home, when when you see the reality of, of, of what it means for the teachers that work there. So, so yeah, we shed our cynicism for, for one night of the one year. Night only, the <laughs> one night only, one night only. And the sheer variety of stuff as well, I think that's what people don't, it's not everyone doing the same thing. The amount of creativity and imagination is is just stunning. So. Absolutely. I think maybe a couple of schools just to highlight there. So mm-hmm. overall school of the year, um, Penn Green Centre in Corby. Um, I think people were really pleased to see uh, an early year setting get that overall. Yeah, award. yeah. People are talking a lot about how early years is, you know, the foundation for everything and the most important phase of education. And here they are coming out top on the uh, TES awards, so that's great. It's been feeling slightly under siege lately as well, hasn't it? So it might be a bit of a morale booster. Yeah, yeah, early years, well, especially maintain nurseries as well. It has been the whole the upheaval in funding, which is separate from the national schools, but no less has been hitting early years sector quite hard recently, yeah. yeah. And also a lot of recognition for, of course, Kensington Aldridge Academy, um, which yeah, was, was at the epicentre, really, of that... Um, Grenfell Tower disaster. Um, they won the Rarely Given um, Special Services to Education Award. Uh, and I think um, being Al Murray was host. He was very moved, I think, by by the work they've done. Again, another yeah. And there's a standing ovation, wasn't there, to kind of tell people that the profession feels behind them and, and supports them, and you know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, show a quick tour of some of the news stories this week. Uh, we've been writing about on our website. Um, now, Helen, I know you've had a couple of stories related to teacher numbers. Um, figures came out today about the number of teachers in yeah. the profession. Yeah. In fact, two lots of figures have come out today. There's some from the DfE, which have shown that there has been a fall in the overall number of teachers. Um, and I think what there's a very kind of Im- Im- visual kind of graph which obviously on a podcast is not so great <laughs> a visual, yep. but it shows you how the number of people going in and the number of people leaving and it shows how the number of people going in has always been higher and then now it's it's equal to the number of people leaving um, and it is very worrying Jeff Barton told us that um, he's the general secretary of the association of school and college leaders that you know he thinks we're in the midst of a long-running teacher recruitment and retention crisis and this is now set to worsen this situation is a serious threat to educational standards. And then... It's, pro- it's probably worth, sorry to yeah. cut in, it's probably worth explaining slightly in case anybody, you know, been writing about a teacher recruitment crisis. Obviously, pupil numbers are going up. So, th- I mean, th- that's been the one the one kind of thing that the government could cling on to. I know you were talking about earlier, Martin, they've always consistently been able to say we've got more teachers in our school than ever, and, and that, that one figure now is... They can't say gone. So, so it's... I mean, the government does seem to be recognising the, the mess they're in now, but but it's um, I think it's particularly bad news that it's finally come to that. Sorry, Helen, you were no, saying. No, and I was just going to say that the the UCAS figures have come out, which showing the applications for people who want to start teach training in September, 
And obviously, you know, we, now it's June, we're getting nearer and nearer to the, the final number of people, mm. as it were. But it's 7% down on the number of people who had applied last year. And obviously in certain subjects, that's higher. So in maths, it's actually 11% down. In physics, 15% down. And that's comparing this month to the same time last that's year. That's right, yeah. Because I think earlier this year, the figures were looking even worse, weren't they? Yeah, they we were. were yeah, like, yeah, what, yeah. 20, yeah. I mean, there's some hope for the government there. Maybe they've kind of managed to to close the gap a bit. So I think the teacher training providers have been out there with their marketing and trying to persuade people, you know, that it's great. Um, but it's still 7% down on last year. Yeah. So when they need them more than ever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. hardly a, hardly <coughs> a good news story. Um, now, the other one, Helen, you wrote about this week. Um, it's quite an astonishing statistic, this one. It was the number of NQTs who last year failed their induction year. Yeah, now this, this was an interesting um, statistic. It was uh, at a conference in London that came out for someone from the DfE was talking about it. Obviously, as some people in the comments have mentioned, you wouldn't necessarily expect the number of people failing their induction year to be particularly high because you've done a, a whole year of initial teacher training and you have to pass that first. Yeah. And so people may, people who really are not suited may have dropped out during the time and once you've got as far as your induction year then you're going into a school you would hope they would have a lot of support and they wouldn't want to be dropping out but the way that um, it was Gareth Conyard who is deputy director of the teacher workforce said he said it doesn't feel there's something quite right he's not really talking about the number what is the number just so so it was sorry I thought you said it was 13 out of 20,000 odd people 13, 13 20,000 people. Yeah, and he was saying, he, he was he was very clear, he was saying it's not about increasing the numbers of people who are not passing, there is, but there is something that doesn't feel right about the process where you have someone coming in, they have something called an appropriate body who comes in to sign off these NQTs, and is that process really doing what they want? And he says no, he says, he says that doesn't feel it's achieving quite what we want it to achieve if you've got this kind of... He was trying to have it both ways, wasn't he? He, yeah. he, he, he was. He was trying to say that he was trying to say mm, that looks a bit dodgy, but then at the same time, not say that they wanted more to fail. But, yeah. but I mean, that is kind of. It's quite difficult though, because there were the, the, the It's all part <coughs> of a, a big shake-up of the way that the early career development has been. As you're saying, the government are starting to wake up to this problem of retention, especially mm. at the beginning of people's careers, and. Um, and so they put in this, they had this consultation and they're going to make an induction year over two years, which I thought was great because you've got a bit longer to settle in. You're going to have 10% less contact time for those two years support. But there were some people at this conference who were kind of saying, actually, if you're an NQT for some people, it feels like you're being scrutinised, you're observed, you're having to tick boxes. And maybe that induction year is actually, you know, a bit more stressful than people think it is rather than supportive. So these two things together, saying, well... What do you mean? So if you double the induction year, then, then the figures might look at... <laughs> well, like, they might like get like worse. Bit, 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 people bit might more. feel like no. they're not properly... They so still not, feel under pressure. No. no, so there is... You know, these things have to be handled a bit more carefully than... You can see You can see the, the idea behind it is all very well, and it's backed up by research. People have got more training, more mentoring, more support in the early years of the careers, less likely to drop out. But at the same time... It could kind of tip the other way. We know how unintended consequences are the bane of education. No, indeed. Uh, the thing I, th I was interested in is, is that um, we've had stories in the past where people have said, you know, one way the government wants to get more people into teaching is to almost 
lower the bar to people who are accepted onto courses. This, you know, 13 NQT's failure, it, it's sort of separate to that, isn't it? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember when that, yeah, because these are the people from last so it's, year. It's the next stage on as well. But that's yeah. the next stage, yeah, yeah. yeah that's the, something that they're coming into and they're going to be looking, Ofsted had kind of said, we'll take that into account when we look at your um, completion rates for the ITT providers. So, yeah, so that's another thing in the mix. Yeah. Um, now, another, I mean, really important story here. Um, I know, Len, you've been writing this week about... Um, the experiences of children who've been adopted in school and also trauma, children who suffer trauma and how that manifests in school and whether there's the right support for them. Um, there's some pretty stark findings, weren't there, from a, was it a survey by Adoption UK? Yeah, they did two surveys. They did one of um, children who've been adopted who um, have been in care in some capacity, look, previously looked after children, um, and also parents of adoptive children uh, so 4,000 in all, and it was just to gauge the the experience of those obviously quite vulnerable children in school, mostly because the majority of them will have experienced um, what's called uh, adverse um, childhood experiences. So obviously loss of their first family, often neglect and abuse, which means they resulted in care in the first place, mm. and they're, they're carrying that around and it starts to play out in the classroom, they need extra support. Um, and one of the uh, surveys, the survey for the children, was actually very um, powerful and also very sad about the vast majority feeling um, that teachers don't fully understand or support their needs. Mm. Um, and also two-thirds of children saying, secondary school children saying, they were bullied um, at school or teased about the fact that they weren't living with their birth families. Staggering as that might sound, it's um, that's what it said. Um, so the rep and, the, and the parents feel that their children, adoptive children, don't have an equal chance at the school because of the lack of recognition of what they extra they're carrying around and how vulnerable they are. Um, so it calls for a range of measures to try and um, narrow the gap between those children's experiences and and their classmates because there's the statistics on their outcomes are very, very poor. I mean, ex exclusion is an astonishing 20 times difference. more likely. Unbelievable. Um, in fact, that there's not been looked at before, really, in terms of what, what's to be done. So the charity sort of tries to present solutions to that. Um, also, their, their achievement levels are much lower because they've got so much going on um, in their lives. And one of the things it calls for is continuing professional development for teachers to know how to identify and support, be more supportive to those children and also um, perhaps a better balance between um, the, the focus on academic achievement and well-being in schools. If that ever flies, well, you know, it's, it's something called for by the Young Minds, the mental health charity mm. for young people. They want to see a better balance. It's called Wise Up Campaign. Yep. So there's a sort of starting to be a bit of a clamour for this about how the accountability pressure for children who are vulnerable, it plays out particularly badly for them. For me, it was really interesting because it fed into what you were writing about in, in the great piece you wrote that went out over last weekend about trauma generally and how how pupils can be traumatised from things going on out, outside school and and you you can't predict how... Sorry, you should talk about it because you wrote it, but how you can't predict how, how it's going to happen and 
how it's going to manifest itself and teachers don't understand it. So it's back to this adverse childhood experiences that, you know, any of us can have as children. Um, some of us have more than others, and it's when they compound on each other. So maybe the child who's fled war-torn, you know, um, country mm. comes to England after some struggle to get uh, asylum and then lives in a tower block that burns down. I mean, that's an awful lot of adversity in anyone's life, let alone as child ill-equipped to cope, to have the resources to handle that. So what happened was we went to a conference where an inner London school teacher talked about uh, three murders of pupils uh, in that short, very short space of time. This is some years ago, but she talked about the impact on, on her school and the fact that's not always recognised. Um, and then we had at a different event about a child whose relative had died in a Grenfell Tower fire, his behaviour deteriorated subsequently and he got excluded. Mm. So it made us wonder, do teachers recognise a sign of traumatic, traumatic stress in pupils? And should but they be expected to? Should they know how to deal with this? Um, and what we found was that it's not an incident that is traumatic, it's your response to the incident. And the more vulnerable you are, the more you've already coped within your life, the more you can, it can sort of almost tip you over. Um, and you and also the lack of support or the, the, the amount of support you'll get at home uh, from your family um, to, to handle it, so to recover from it. So it was looking at um, the fact that um, some children are more vulnerable than others, mm. and teachers actually. The teachers had, um, you know, a lot of uh, diff different pressures in their lives. They may be more vulnerable to the way they respond uh, uh, and to be traumatized. But it's also, it's not just the fact that you're traumatized. It's the fact that people don't recognize how it plays out, and so. Um, often a child will act out, play out, misbehave. It seems like misbehaviour, but actually it's the early signs of trauma. That's a key thing I picked up from your article yeah. was this idea. It's, it's t very easy for teachers to misinterpret yeah. poor behaviour, and, and yet it's really important to, if it is because of trauma, the earlier you can recognise it yeah. and adapt, the better. There's yeah. two things, isn't there? Because they might, they might not even be aware of the traumatic incident I mean there might be but there might not be and then and then you don't know how how they're going to react it's like you use that example that what one people might respond to one incident by by getting very aggressive and attacking somebody and end up being excluded and then another people might react to exactly the same incident and just and just close down and just and just be completely yeah. quiet. I th they said about basically when you have continued traumatic adverse incidents like domestic violence at home or an abusive parent at home so your your hormone your fight or flight responses basically are in overdrive so you get more aggressive you overreact to things or you're more sensitive to prompts you know the sort of the trigger mm. is much lower and so people think oh he's overreacting he's got a short fuse da, da, da. but actually it's somebody who's basically burnt out um, and worn down and um, needs help so Again, as we spoke to young minds who again say what you need um, is you don't want teachers to try and be mental health professionals. Mm. This isn't mental health, by the way. It can lead to mental health problems, but trauma is its own thing. Um, but it's about teachers being able to have maybe a sort of different f outlook when they approach a child who's, you know, uh, seems to be overreacting or completely withdrawn and not giving eye contact. To not presume it's insolence, to not presume it's just sort of like unbased aggression but it might be actually something deeper going on 
um, and to just take, to have that mindset and to be compassionate, just mm. being compassionate towards a child showing the early signs of trauma can make the difference necessary for them to have a recovery rather than to have enduring um, problems that end up with mental health problems. Yeah, get worse. Um, yeah. The thing I wanted to talk about, um, this is a piece in the magazine this week. More cheering news. More cheering news. <laughs> um, yes. Um, so it's basically about um, school improvement and, and how local authorities have got rid of or well, there's been a big loss of local authority school improvement officers. Yeah. Um, done by John Roberts, our colleague. Um, Will, do you want to have a quick uh, sort of summarise what, what, what John found? Yeah, it's a great piece. John's come across some really quite shocking figures. Um, basically, they show, well, I, I'll read some of them out, they speak for themselves. So, for example, Herefordshire in 2010 had 43 different school improvement officers, and in 2016 17 had one. So it, it's dropped by ninety seven percent, and I mean that that's the highest. But yep. there, there are there are I can't count them now, but there are there are at least ten I think that have that have seen a more than eighty percent drop in numbers of school improvement officers, and then you've got similar numbers that have that have seen the the percentage of money they actually spend on this gone down by at least kind of seventy five percent. I think it's interesting because so much of the focus of the debate about schools tends to be on academies and mats and what's going on there and you know we have a lot about failing mats and how much mat CEOs are paid and all that kind of thing but what kind of tends to get missed is that you've still got 14,000 maintained schools out mm. there that you know the large majority of our school system are, r rely on these school improvement yeah, officers. Especially at primary school level. Yeah who, who no longer exist because the again something John's pulled out of this the fact that the school funding system has almost Changed as a result of some of a policy that was actually abandoned when they were going to go for full academisation, they they cut the, the the education services grant, which is where the school improvement money was coming from. Now, of course, they never went through full academisation, but they're funding it as if they have. Yeah. So you know, it's something schools just have to get by and and and, and work out ways of helping themselves. But it, it's something really interesting to throw a light on it because I'm sure it makes things much harder. Yeah. And again, it's, it's, it's the difference between academies and non-academies. So academy trusts, one of the things they will do usually is provide their own school improvement services or somehow. Yeah, and, th and they've got that money that local, well, <laughs> the money that no longer exists, but they yeah. would have had the money that local authorities had. So, so they can act in that way. But yeah, if you're local authority school, I mean, that's the other thing as well, because it's, it's economies of scale, because it's not just the, f the funding from those academies will have gone. It's that if you want to keep these services running, you need a sufficient number of schools to make it viable. So if you're in a, in a small authority or an authority where a lot of schools have become academies, then that's going to make it a lot harder. Yeah. But often, you know, a lot of secondaries will become academies, but you'll have numerous primary schools that still maintain schools and now don't in reality have somebody to turn to. I think there's somebody in here who said they, you know, they used to get regular visits and they hadn't seen somebody in about five years. Yeah, I think the other point was and there are some areas where there are lots of academies and perhaps the academy trusts aren't doing particularly well. So even if maintained schools wanted to buy in services from the, those academy trusts, that isn't an option either. So they've almost lost both options. They've got a double whammy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, one point I did see there, though, was um, the idea of, well, perhaps schools shouldn't be asking for councils to, to have the funding to do this again, but should be looking for other routes and perhaps school-to-school -school collaboration. I think they are doing, and but 
and and that is what's happening because because as I say, so you, you you have to do something. So, so schools will do what they can, but obviously, in terms of resources, it's not a substitute because yep. you had somebody there that was paid for, and we all know how um, strapped for cash schools are now. So so they do what they can, but I I, I don't think it's it's a substitute for some of them. Great. Well, that's another cheerful note to end our uh, <laughs> test podcast on. Um, thank you all for listening. Um, more good news next week. <laughs>